You're rocking with The Griots. What's a griot? It's a storyteller, a poet, an artist, a culture keeper. Just two success coaches sharing life lessons and offering new perspectives. Celebrating life, love, and self. With ordinary people telling extraordinary stories. We're your hosts, Jamil B. and Keith Marcel, and this is The American Griot. This podcast is for everyone who's ready to stop stuffing themselves into boxes that no longer fit. It's about releasing the burden of black trauma and embracing creative ways to heal and recharge. You will hear real stories from real people that affirm, inspire, liberate, and restore us. It's so much bigger than money, though, Dave. It's so much bigger than money. Oh, no, it was bigger than money. But you know what? I, I watched one of these nature shows one time. And they were talking about how a bushman finds water when it's scarce. Uh-huh. And they do what's called a salt trap. I, I, I didn't know this. Apparently, baboons love salt. Okay. So they put a lump of salt in a hole, and they wait for the baboon. The baboon comes, sticks his hand in the hole, grabs the salt. Salt makes his hand bigger, and he's trapped. He can't get his hand out. Now, if he's smart, all he does is let go of the salt. Baboon doesn't want to let go of the salt. Then the bushman just comes, takes the baboon, throws him in the cage, and gives him all the salt he wants. And then the baboon gets thirsty. The bushman lets him out of the cage. The first place the baboon runs to is water. Bushman follows him, and they both drink to their fill. And in that analogy, I felt like the baboon. But I was smart enough to let go of the salt. That was a powerful clip. But I have to say that David Chappelle is not a comedian. He's more like a philosopher that just happens to be funny. Right? Oh, my God. He is the real American Grio. His baboon analogy was spot on in the sense that we all have something that we're grasping for, right? But for some of us, we've never considered dropping assault to even be an option. Mm. We grind, we climb, and when the opportunity comes to grab our prize and it's within reach, we take it, but we don't want to let it go. Oh, my God. No, we don't. And... I think when you take a 30,000 foot view of this country, you start to see all the buried salt out there. You can see the traps set up within different industries like entertainment, sports, finance, education, really all over. And through efforts like influencer marketing, not just from individuals, but from brands and online schools, too. They're all telling you you haven't made it yet. But if you stick your hand down this hole you too can be successful. But what does that even mean? And what does it cost? And who does it even benefit? So that's what we're going to dive into today. What does it mean to be successful in America and as black people? Because like for what seems like forever, a colonized America has been split between two main groups. We have the owners and non-owners, those with power and those that serve the power. And I think from the formation of this country, the definition of success has always been measured by the domination of resources, which is really how much wealth can you acquire and how many people can you control? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And I think some of the examples of that owner mentality you mentioned are things like doing less and making more. Right. Grow, acquire, consolidate. Grab whatever you can around you and hold on to it as long as possible. And then keep digging those salt traps so you can be led to more and more and more. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of ironic if you think about it. Because really all of those mindsets are rooted in the idea of scarcity and fear. Right? Like the fear that there's not enough. 
that I'm not enough. And in order to be enough, I have to excel at the expense of another's decline. Bruh, you hit that. I mean, <laughs> for, for real. I mean, we, we, we have this duality where we want to get all of this, but we also don't want to crush people on the way there, you know? Right. Um, right. And, and those are facts. And, and meanwhile, the non-owner or servant mentality has been to learn as much as possible, spend more on college and continued education, be a consumer, not a creator, be a producer, not a director. It's just like, it's like this idea that if you take on more than one day, you too can be an owner. Mm -hmm. You too can be like them and be enough. But the crazy thing is, like you said, even they don't truly believe they're enough. Mm. And that's become the model, right? And like in Chappelle's analogy, we get a little taste and then we do all the work to fill the belly of those we serve. And by the end of it, everyone is playing into this game where there are no real winners. Right. But I mean, that's the context we're born into, Keith. <laughs> that's the game. Oh, the game. That's why they call it the trap. I mean, it, it it doesn't really serve us to pretend that it's not happening, you know. And if success is survival, then I guess it makes sense that we do want to be owners. So what do you say about black people who've gotten to a level in their life where they can feel like they can sit back and say, yeah, I made it. I'm an owner. I mean, because there are definitely black executives out there. There are black business owners and others who are doing well financially. But there's not enough. There's mm. not nearly enough. Mm. So if we're defining corporate success for black people as rising up to the highest levels in an organization, the stats are dismal. According to recent data from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in a Wall Street Journal article that we picked up, it stated that out of the chief executives running America's top 500 companies, just 1% or four are black. The numbers aren't much better on the rungs of the ladder leading to that role. Among all U.S. companies with 100 or more employees, black people hold just 3% of executive or senior level roles. And of the four black CEOs, none of them are women. So take a moment, let that sink in. Yeah. We got 500 companies, 500 chief executives, four are black. None are black women. Uh, man, <laughs> like, uh, it makes me so sad. So, like, why do you think that is, though? Because I actually think it's a few things. I think that um, if we continue with the analogy of it being a game, right, and in order for there to be winners, there must be losers, we already know that the architects of this American version of the game intentionally and, dare I say, masterfully, designed the rules to limit the amount of turns and access that black people and women, black women, if you want to just do the double down, get in the first place. It's like playing Monopoly, but waiting to start after everyone goes around the board, let's say about six times, buying up all the property. And then once you get started, you don't even get to ch uh, a chance to pull community chess. Just so you know, in this game, I'm the car. <laughs> Your life. <laughs> and you're the you're the thimble. I'm the thimble. That's okay, cause I'm out here, you know, saying sewing up stuff and flipping it like a stir fry. <laughs> you're right. Though. I mean, and and you know, I couldn't even react to that that analogy because it's it's so true, and it's it it makes me kind of sad. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have this internal 
conflict of values as well. As black Americans, we know firsthand how the values that underpin this American definition of success has done its best to destroy us and indigenous people. But at the same time, it keeps dominating. So the thought is, well, I want to survive. Not just that, I want to thrive. So if this is the game I'm born into, my thing is, how do I grab that get out of jail free card and scoop up Atlanta Ave so I, I can stay in the game? Because if that's the definition of success that's been internalized, then the question really becomes, how far are you willing to go to get it? And my mother used to tell me this thing. I don't even know if you remember, but you said this to me more than once. You said, son, sometimes you have to be a lion so you can be the lamb you really are. And I told my mother, you can ask her, I said, mom, I'm going to make it all the way to the top of the socioeconomic ladder. I'm a smart kid. The my dad takes me outside and he's like, listen, everybody wants to make it and you might not make it. And I said to my dad, well, well, that depends on what making it is, dad. And he started laughing. He said, if you keep that attitude, I think you should go. He said, but name your price in the beginning. If it ever gets more expensive than the price you name, get out of there. So how expensive do you think this definition of success has really become to us as Americans and as black people? I'd say very. We pay with our health, both mental and physical, our time, talent, and our passion. Um, and, and we find ourselves chasing after success in what feels like a never-ending goal. Like we're chasing and reaching and grasping, but never quite attaining because it's always moving, right? Like you want one thing because you think that when you get it, then you'll be more complete. Then you get it and then there's something else. So you graduate and then you get the degree and then you get the job and the job and then you get the man and the man and then you get the marriage and then you get the kids and then you get the house. It's like you're always chasing something. But like Dave Chappelle said, when will enough be enough? I think there comes a point when you have to be willing to ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? And would it serve me better to have a different definition of success? And, and not just a different definition, right? But my definition. Mm, right. I think that speaks to the core of why we are even rebranding this podcast. Going from the Griot's podcast to the American Griot. Because we asked ourselves the very same question. And we are trying to be very intentional about finding answers that are authentic and healthy and satisfying, you know. The heart of being both American and a griot is about digging deep and having the courage to tell the truth about this constant internal and external conflict we find ourselves in when you're walking through the American experience in a black body. Like every other human, every other American, we are in search of success and wholeness. We are navigating our identities as civic citizens, as parents, entrepreneurs, employees, as spirits, as friends. But we're doing it all while being black, which in America means something very different than it does for anybody else. Very well said, my friend. And it's a bit of a conundrum, though, isn't it? Because when you think about it, the American identity, even the invention of race, like blackness and whiteness, is rooted in the very definition of success. It's rooted in capitalism, in colonialism, in manifest destiny. Because basically, it's like conquer, kill, steal, and destroy. But the irony is that even though it's part of the American narrative, it's not 
part of the one that we grew up learning about. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's really taboo to even admit it. And like the American narrative, you know, the one we got, it's all about democracy, freedom, equality, justice, and the whole idea that individuals can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Which, by the way, just side note, that was actually a joke, right? Like, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps started as a joke because it's ridiculous and no one can actually pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Just wanted to put that out there. But anyway, I digress. It's all part of an American identity that's rooted in the idea that one, that you can be one thing while convincing yourself that you're something else. And by definition, a griot is a West African storyteller whose mission and purpose is to do his or her best to find, tell, and preserve the truth of what really happened. And so it kind of seems like the two are totally in opposition to one another, don't they? I mean, talk about internal conflict. Yeah, internal conflict. Mm. That's a thing. That's real. <laughs> but not today they don't. Okay. Not today. And you know why? Why? It's, it's because we're about to tell the story about how race was invented in America. In fact, we're going to explore not just how it was invented, but why. Mm. Because it was definitely created on purpose. And it's still being used as a strategic tool to institutionalize a division of power. And still reinforces our social concepts of success today. Okay, so boom. If we're going to talk about um, race or tell the story of race, I think it really makes sense to first address what people currently think it is. Um, I think most people, when they think about race, it's a category of kinship or physical commonalities that represents a shared ethnicity or ancestry. And it's not? No. (laughs) (laughs) nah I mean I think that's how society has come to understand it today but that's definitely not what it was or how it was used right so let's be clear race is the result of supply and demand it is literally an invention of capitalism created to sustain power dynamics and to support the economic stability for colonial governments Remember, if success had always been measured by the acquisition of wealth and power over resources like land and people, then the concept of race, as it's used legally, was to, um, as a tool to divide and determine the distribution of that power. That's so true. I mean, let's go back. Mm-hmm. In the early 1500s, race didn't even exist in the context that we use it in today. Like, non-existent. It wasn't connected to ethnicity or used as a reference to kinship, it literally was used to describe the appearance of someone pointing to the color of their skin, how light or dark someone was, taking notice of the amount of melanin they had. So they definitely weren't colorblind, but nobody is, right, in real life? Not in real life. People were identified and categorized primarily by their country of origin or tribe, religion, their economic status. Were you a landowner? Were you not? That was it. In fact, your economic status had more weight in determining your outcome in life than anything else, especially from a Eurocentric point of view. And at that point, it wasn't a determination of the opportunities you'd have in life. Color didn't become classified as race until much later. Okay, so if we were to put it into context, we already know that colonialism started around the early 1500s. So despite ongoing wars and conflicts between the Native Americans who fought desperately to, to protect their lands, eventually um, 
the settlement of Jamestown, Virginia was still established. That was around 16, well, that was in 1607. And so from that perspective, the, the colonialists were successful because they had acquired more land. Problem was, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to work it. So what did they need? Skilled labor. And not just any skilled labor, but low cost or free labor, because that's how capitalism works, right? Otherwise, you don't make a profit. That sounds real familiar. <laughs> um, speaking of that, <laughs> so we know about slavery. Um, but at the same time, slaves weren't actually the main source of labor. And slavery wasn't even based on race. Mm. In fact, you were only considered to be a slave if you had been a captive of war. They tried to enslave the Native Americans, but they were too quick for them. They knew the land too well, so they got low, they got fast. Got low, got fast. Mm -hmm. So what could they do if they were going to continue to be successful? Enters in the first sustainable low-cost labor source, indentured servitude. An indentured servant was someone who worked for little or no money because they owed a debt. Mm, Sounds familiar. Yeah, and what they got in exchange was room and board, Mm -hmm. food, and often the promise of some sort of severance package. If you negotiate it right, in the case of Jamestown from 1607 until the late 1600s, the promise was that once their term ended, they would be given access to land. But because the more wealthy elite had already monopolized the majority of the land and the Native Americans were defending what they had left, by the time that term came up, both Europeans and Africans had nothing to choose from. So they stayed in poverty and many renewed their terms so that they could at least have some kind of room and board. I mean, I'm just saying, though, it just still sounds so familiar. Empty promises from smiling faces, companies that don't want to deliver on what they said because of the impact that it could have to their bottom line. Completely forgetting the fact that the only reason they have as much as they do is because of the labor that they have in the first place. So you over deliver for a company for six, 10 years, but never earn that promotion that you were looking for. You have the debt, the mortgage, the credit card, the car note, but still can't make quite enough to pay that off and realize the promise of quote unquote success. Right. So then what happens? Free labor ain't so free. Mm. It starts to cost a little more. 99% rally together, an advocate for fair pay, higher wages, better treatment, and more benefits. You see it happening now, and that's exactly what started happening back in the mid-1600s. The colonial elite wanted to remain successful. They wanted to hold on to the land that they had stolen. But there were fluctuations in the market. Demands from newly freed servants continued to grow, and then there was the Bacon Rebellion. Oh, my God, the Bacon Rebellion. So if we're going to talk about the invention of race as a capitalistic tool that was that also stands to answer Chappelle's question of knowing how far you're willing to go, right, to get to this idea of success, this scarcity-driven concept, at least if, it, if it's rooted in that, then we have to talk about the Bacon Rebellion. Because after that, that's when race really got real, legally. Yeah, and that's because in 1676, uh, there was a big turning point. See, Nathaniel Bacon, he was doing really well, white property owner, Um, And he was the relative of Virginia's governor, William Berkeley. But they didn't get along together, Bacon and Berkeley. They didn't, they weren't friends. They weren't that tight. Um, But, and they disagreed over a lot of issues about how the colony should run, how things should be governed, including their policy towards Native Americans. 
See, Bacon wanted to be on the aggressive and push towards attacking the Native Americans to try to take their land. But Berkeley thought that by doing so, all the tribes would get together, unite, and cause costly destruction against the colony. But Bacon, he didn't really care. So he got his militia together, organizing rebels, white and black, indentured servants, and enslaved black people in exchange for freedom. So offering them an opportunity to be free after they contributed to his cause. And they got together and attacked nearby tribes. But then he captured Jamestown and completely destroyed it, burning it all to the ground. Right. And so the the fact that that happened had Virginia's wealthy shook. Like the sheer fact that a rebel militia could unite both white and black servants, you know, at the time and then destroy the capital, really um, painted the picture that unity is important and how powerful it can be. So what they did is they shifted their strategy to maintain dominance. And this is when white was introduced into legal documents as a way to separate the classes. Essentially what happened is um, white people were given new rights like management roles and um, just different privileges legally. And then black indentured servants were relegated to slavery and not just any slavery, but perpetual slavery and slavery as property which took away their humanity legally, okay? So enters in race-based chattel slavery as a form of institutionalizing economic power and a long game play to ensure their road to success. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting the, the, the military strategy behind that and the, and the, entitlement strategy behind that right mm. to, to put all these things together to go against a family member who seems to be of sound mind and judgment and at least in that time right you know and and they were all still and stuff so yeah they were but it was just like you know we're gonna do it let's do it this way you right know? let's like, not nah, cause let's... war out here <laughs> you know and it's 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 just crazy to think that you know people were standing up and and rebelling in that in that way with all of their using all that privilege to pull people together uh-huh. in order to uh-huh. try to take something something down that belonged to somebody else. But it makes it makes me think about our ancestors. You know, what about our road to success? When I think back to their story and all of this, it just makes me wonder what their definition of success was. And I think it was to survive. Mm-hmm. I think it was to align themselves with whatever leader that appeared to do them the less harm. It was like weighing the pros and cons of looking at a two-headed snake, wondering which one will bite me today, which one can I keep at bay, which one will get me closer to freedom. So ultimately, we, fi- we still find ourselves faced with a decision to make. How do we redefine what success is for us and still play to win? But I do remember what all the ancient texts say. There isn't a single flood myth. There isn't a single story of the destruction of past civilizations that don't implicate humanity in the story somewhere. Our own behavior, what we do, is part of what we're bringing down on the world right now. We are, what we are, what we are manifesting in the world, that is what is coming towards us. We are the authors of this thing, and we can change the story if we want to change it. I firmly believe that. Are we looking at the traces of a forgotten episode in human history? I think so. 
I think that's, that's what's going on here. And because we've forgotten it, because we are a species with amnesia, because we are so much a mystery to ourselves, perhaps it's because of that that we're so lost and so troubled today, so haunted by this sense of something missing, something that we need to know uh, about ourselves. That was Graham Hancock, a British author and journalist, and he was reflecting on an Egyptian prophecy from the god called Thoth, and also on conversations he personally had with many indigenous shamans. And I think what really sticks out to me is the point he makes about acknowledging the ownership that we have as humans in creating this reality we're living in. As heavy as it is to hold sometimes, it's still of our making, and we have to face it. But he also points out that we are the only ones who can correct it. But that's hard, right? Mm. It can be really hard. And, And he hit it when he said that we're haunted. We're haunted by something missing. And we feel it with so many things right now, with distractions, paper chasing. We have this feeling that we're headed somewhere fast, but I mean, we're left with this question of what's the destination. Mm, yeah, but I think, I think the problem is that the destination is a moving target. If we were to base it in this concept of success that we've been unpacking, right? But it shouldn't be. We should be able to question and redefine success for ourselves in a way that is stable, that is rooted, that is core to who we are and who we choose to be so that it doesn't become just this thing that changes by the blowing of the wind, but it's really our North Star. And as we move through this game called life, especially as black people in America, that's the thing that we should be able to call upon, you know, to know if we're going in the right direction and we can answer how far we're willing to go and what lines we're willing to cross in our search for self. Yeah, exactly. So treating success as an internal place that no outside entity can define for us. That place is a place of awareness and not some utopian ideology that is completely disconnected from our current reality. What I mean by that is as black Americans, we have to, for survival's sake, be aware of the rules of this game especially those that are created to hold us back. But we also have to be able to tap into the unseen thing, the thing that has been denied by this game for so long. And that's our spirits. It's our values. It's our ancestors. It's our history. It's so that we can play a different game and reject this one. Mm, Yeah, but what does that look like lived out, right? I think that's the question, too, that we have to answer. And I think lived out, it does look like ownership, right? But ethical and socially responsible ownership, a willingness to pay higher wages for good and loyal labor and sustainability. It looks like building relationships, but not on lies, but on authenticity and integrity. I think something that just needs to be pointed out also is like we're constantly moving through and healing from the trauma 
of living while black in America that has been connected over the course of our journeys. Yeah, it's one that never leaves you. It's, mm-hmm. it's right there with you every step of the way. And so our goal as American griots is to always offer something new to reflect on. I mean, sometimes it's going to be light. Sometimes it might be a little heavy. Mm-hmm. But we understand that learning something that contradicts your current idea of reality can be traumatic. Yeah. You know, and I know people are getting used to hearing the word trauma, right? Because we we want to redefine this so that you could just get used to it. Let's just call a thing a thing because it is traumatic that there's this moving goal that you can't quite seem to hit. You know, it's not new because it's been normalized, but it, it's still traumatic. It is traumatic. And it's, it's, it's traumatic to learn that the mindset that is fueling us in the first place to even choose and chase those goals is rooted in scarcity and not abundance. Right. It's traumatic to be reminded of how ingrained race and racism has been in our society since the 17th century, a completely manufactured identity that still has very real consequences for black lives. Even today, it's hard to sit with. Even though we deal with it every day, it still can be hard to reflect on. And we get that. But that's the point, to Mm -hmm. recognize the trauma and be aware of the default responses we have to that trauma. Because that's the only way we can figure out how to heal, right? Right, right. And I feel like we are offering ourselves as case studies, right? Because we are absolutely trying to ask and answer these same questions for ourselves every day, every single day, reflecting and recalibrating in a way that allows us to move through the game more intentionally. So, Jamil. Hi. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) How have you noticed yourself responding to this reality? And how have you redefined success for yourself? Mm, How I notice myself responding to this reality um I noticed myself responding with frustration and disappointment when expectations I had for people whether you know it was employers or politicians or you know just the folks in general didn't live up to the expectation that I had for them and this came out of reflection right just over the course of time I think it's important that we look back you know, on the chapters in our lives to recognize these themes. Um, And I had expectations that people should be honest, right? Or treat me um, in a way that I thought was fair or just or to be transparent with their intentions because facts of the matter is I can't help but to wear my feelings on my sleeves, (laughs) you know, so I just felt like everyone should do that. And I think I noticed this when I found myself looking for happiness at work Um, trying to find my quote-unquote passion or a career that fulfilled me or even a culture that validated me. Um, And at a certain point, I saw a trend that I would be at a company, master whatever it was that I was doing, advocate for a promotion that never came. And after about three years or so, I would I would transition. I would go off and I would explore something else, maybe a different industry, and I would run into the exact same thing. Until finally I realized that I was giving my power away. And it wasn't them, but it was me, and it was the way I was approaching it, right? Like, it's not a company's responsibility or really any other person for that matter to fulfill me or to validate me or to bring me happiness, I decided to find a way to give it to myself. 
And so everything that I gave out, I decided to give back to myself. So I guess, you know, when I saw the game for what it was, my response was to reject it, to say, yes, I know I need money because I have a family and I have bills to pay, right? And I'm going to pay them and I want to take care of my people. So I'm willing to play the game. But what I did was I stopped being so emotionally invested in it. Um, I decided to redefine success first by redefining failure because if failure is this idea that you don't get to a specific outcome, you know, that you expected. And that is like people's biggest fear, right? Like they, they fear failure because they fear the idea of being wrong. I decided to accept a reality that I really can't fail because even if I get to a different result than I anticipated, as long as I moved, as long as I, I tried and I did my best, my best is enough. In fact, my best is more than enough. And even my failure is greatness. You know what I'm saying? Like the lesson and the wisdom that I didn't have previously, I now acquired. And so for me, success is the act of being present in the journey. It's choosing to be aware of where I am and finding gratitude in each given moment and always deciding to move forward if it's an inch or if it's a mile. Um, just deciding to, to redefine the game, really. So would you say that you're in a better place now? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because even when I strive now for, you know, something new that I want to do, I can find peace and gratitude and wholeness and fulfillment in my present moment. Even if I don't do a different thing, right, for for someone else, I find wholeness where I am. Like even the podcast that we're doing, like, this is because I want to do it. It's not because I'm trying to prove something to somebody else. You see what I'm saying? Well, speaking of somebody else, how do you, now that you, you found, you know, some core direction, some kind of guide compass within when people are still trying to put that pressure of checklist living on you. Mm. Oh, did you, did you do this? Have you achieved this yet? How do you push those things away that you so you can stay aligned with your compass inter- internally? I think that is a great question. I think that what I what I do personally is I I do accept responsibilities because again, I gotta make money, right? So I have a whole W two. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I have a personal brand of excellence that I'm going to show up with, right? But what I do is I don't overpromise anymore. Whereas before, I would overpromise because I connected internally my sense of value to how much I could do, right? Like I would over, 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 overcommit, and then I would burn myself at both ends. So now I set boundaries. And so I'll be very clear about expectations. I'll be very clear about what I will and won't do. And I, I leverage the power of saying no, right? So I only commit to the things that, number one, are in alignment with my values and that serve the necessity of my role, and then I deliver on it because I, I do want to, you know what I mean? I want to deliver on that. But I just use boundaries and I use the power of no, no these days. You use it a lot with me, by the way. <laughs> Lies. <laughs> but I can, I can relate. You know, for me, I've always been attracted to the entertainment and creative space. I mean, in my, in my many lives I've lived, I've been a musician, an entrepreneur. And for all of them, I've been a professional creative, uh, at least for the last 15 years. But it wasn't just the creating part that kind of fueled my drive. 
um, I look back and I can recognize a lot of my motivators for success had to do with being like the people I saw on those magazine covers and movies, TV shows, performing on 106th and Park. You know, that led me down this endless path of want, just wanting, 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 wanting everything. The money, the clothes, the notoriety, you know, real surface level stuff. And I think that through my growth and awareness, you know, waking up to myself, uh, it's taught me that all of that is baseless. And, you know, because I'm a parent, this may not resonate with all, but I measure my success now by how strong my legacy is. You know, that's really, really, really important to me, my legacy. And for me, legacy isn't a trust fund. It's the values I teach my kids. It's the impact I leave on my friends and family. It's unearthing truths. It's creating new ones and then sharing all of that with the world. Money is an absentee, though. You know, we, we talk about our jobs. We, we got bills to pay. And I, but I value myself and I value what I offer to the world. So I'm going to earn it and I'm going to demand what I deserve. But I believe if I chase my passions with my whole heart, then I'll get out of it exactly what I need. But it's a means to an end. And that end for me is freedom. And it's the freedom to build my legacy exactly how I choose. Mm, that was really good. Um, you You mentioned something earlier that I think was really important, right? Like, we are bombarded constantly with these images of success. You know, what uh, what we should aspire to be like, what we should aspire to model ourselves after. So I'm curious, as you've realigned and as you continue to grow and follow your core, where do you look for your models, you know what I mean, of success? In the mirror. Okay. <laughs> I look at myself, you know, and I, I break myself down all the time, as we all do. You know, we have our, our, our thoughts about ourselves. But I, 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 I take the moments that we often skip over to appreciate every day, the efforts I make every day. You know, and, and even tapping into those anxieties that come about when you're thinking that you're not achieving as much as you should, I encourage you, as I've, I've learned to do and has been working for me, to really just – Break down the entire day, moment by moment. What did I, what did I get done today? Because you're going to have those Netflix binge days. And, you mm -hmm. know, just put those aside because those are L's. You know, it's <laughs> just what it is. <laughs> but that's not every day. You know, pull yourself out of it. Think about think about the work you did. Did you do the dishes today? Did you mm. did you give your kid a hug? Did mm. you did you smile at yourself in the mirror when you're brushing your teeth? You know, those are all wins, and, and they keep you going. And so, you know, I look for that, the, the model for myself and and – and myself, but I also look to my family and my friends and I look to the people that I have around me. And I, and we talked about this recently, just how thankful I feel about the people in my, in my circle. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with our definition of success. Who do we keep around us? Because if we have people who are un or misaligning us, who are right. not aligned with where we're trying to go, then, you know, you're going to, you have an uphill battle to face keeping yourself in that, in that core compass aligned with, with your destination um, because of those distractions. Now that's good. Oh my God, that was, <laughs> come on, dropping the bombs <laughs> out here. Set myself, like, yes. Um, I, I want to also just hit on something you said about um, the, the circle that you keep and the alignment, right? Um, looking in the mirror, recognizing who you are and what you attract are one and the same, right? Like who you attract to you and where you want to be are like they're one in the same. And so if you find yourself surrounded by 
um, relationships that are draining you, there's something that needs to be recalibrated within how you're defining success because that's what's attracting those relationships to you. And so I guess I want to challenge all of us, you know, um, our listeners especially, sit down with yourself. Like sit and be still for a moment and do it with openness and compassion and curiosity and really be willing to ask yourself, what is your why? What is your definition of success? What is your definition of failure? And are you willing to fail? And can you define failure and the experience and the willingness to do it as a road to success? How willing, how far are you willing to go, you know? And um, do those definitions currently serve you? And if not, are you willing to change them? Hey, Griots. We want to thank you so much for sharing space with us. If you enjoyed this podcast or heard something you liked, pay it forward and pass it along to someone else. We're making more episodes that celebrate our stories, so support us. Go to your preferred podcast app, rate us, and subscribe. You can also follow us on IG at The American Griot or visit the website at theamericangriot.com to get resources from the show notes or leave a comment or question on the episode. Until next time, be inspired and be on purpose. And remember to live in the now because nothing lasts forever. <laughs>